This is Shelf Marks and I'm Zoe Cummins, podcaster in residence at the Royal Irish Academy. In this special episode in association with the Department of Foreign Affairs for St. Bridget's Day, we explore the goddess and the saint. And a little later on, I'll take a walk in Renville Park with poet and writer Elaine Feeney. Two Bridgets. First, the mother goddess of poetry, healing and smithwork. The mother goddess begins in the earth, before the land makes green promises, before seasons have names, a place where geography gives birth to its history. Thick ice, one kilometre deep. As the ice pulls back, it leaves mounds of earth that necklace the land. Drumlands stretch right across the neck of the country like beads. Warmth and light cloak this place, a rebirth from the cold after thousands of years. A new season is coming. The ice passes, dynasties too. Hunters, marching armies, travellers, they too pass. It's an untamed landscape that gives us stories of kings and queens and cow raiders, chieftains and brutal battles of death and of birth. Bridget is born. Bridget the daughter of the god Dagda and the goddess Morgan. She's born at daybreak with a head of flame. One goddess with many roles. One for protection, one for poetry, one for metalwork. Bridget protects the mortals and the gods themselves. She nurtures the land, its crops, its animals. She tends her sacred flame. This flame burns for the people who name the land and the fields and each other. The world shifts and changes. Each person now a neighbour, each with a house, each with a hearth. And at night, before sleep, people rake their fires. The glowing embers of the night fire would last until morning. From these, the seed, the mother fire, kindles the new day's fire. And so the stories and ways continue. Out of these myths a baby is born, a girl, a second Bridget. To the chieftain Duach, her mother is a woman, Brushuk, working in his household. She is born, but it's the people that will make her and remake her. They will tell her story. Strangers will say her prayers. Sometimes, even years later, we can still hear these. The world shifts and changes. It's 1926, and the director of the sound department at the Prussian State Library, Wilhelm Dogen, comes to Ireland to record the dialects of the Gaeltacht. Speakers are asked to count or sing a song. This girl is by a river gathering rushes. She's beautiful, and a man tries to entice her. She refuses. Do not scatter my bundle of rushes, she says. I have worked hard for them. They come from all over the country and recite parables and prayers onto wax cylinders. 
I preserve the fire. I put Bridget in the middle of my house, protecting my house and all in it till dawn. They tell folk stories. They tell stories they've been told and retold. This story of a woman, a goddess perhaps, a saint. But each story offers a new way of looking at Bridget. The makers of Bridget are the storytellers. She was the daughter of a poor person. She spent all of her father's wealth on the poor. The father did not know what he would do with her. He brought her to a king of Leinster to sell her. He left her outside of the gate to mind his sword and scabbard. While her father was inside, a poor person went by. He asked her for charity. She gave him her father's sword and scabbard. When her father came out, he asked her where they were. She said that she had given them as alms to the poor person. You are no good to me, says the father. You are no good to me. The young woman leaves for Kildare. The story is told and retold. She tends to the sick. At one man's bedside, she gathers rushes from the floor to make a cross. She becomes a nun and makes a cloak, a mantle for herself. It's a magical cloak. Four saints go to the Kura of Kildare with Bridget's mantle. After she opens it, it spreads. It reaches far across the flat lands. Bridget's cloak spreads seven miles in length, seven miles broad, and she will have seven times the fill of that worth of souls on Judgment Day. Bridget uses this land to found her church, the Church of the Oak in Kildare. There she tends her eternal flame and does her share of protection. Her cloak, a rug spread at the threshold of a new season. These recordings are from the Dogen Archive in the Royal Irish Academy. Dogen and his assistant, Carl Temple, gathered hundreds of recordings over three or so years between 1928 and 1931. Elaine Feeney is a poet and writer whose most recent book is As You Were. In the past year, she's won the Kate O'Brien and the Dorky Emerging Writer Awards. Elaine's writing examines how history and national identity structure the everyday lives of Irish women. For this episode of Shelfmarks, Elaine has written an essay and a short story prompted by the figure of Bridget, The Coming of Spring and the Lives of Women. She also takes inspiration from the Tom Murphy Mamo trilogy, the plays Balya Gangoira, A Thief of a Christmas, and of course, Bridget. We took a walk near Arran Moor in Galway. So we're in Renville Park in Arran Moor in County Galway, and I love this place. I can actually just hear a wood pigeon. Did you hear the wood pigeon? Yeah, I love wood pigeons as well. 
Um, yeah, they sort of herald spring for me, even though I think you can hear them all year round. But we're going to turn this bend now and we're going to be able to see the Atlantic and the sea. I'm really drawn to the sea. And I'm from Athenry and we don't have any water, just a little river that runs through the town that you hardly notice. And even though Galway is coastal, I was, you know, I didn't really grow up beside the sea. So it has this sort of exotic draw for me. It's nearly like, oh my God, every time I come to Ormore, I'm on my holidays. It's only a couple of miles out the road. So I think for me, you have the woods and you have the sea and I just find it, it's a really peaceful place. We're walking through some woodland on a track, but you can see the Atlantic and hills beyond. Yeah, it's quite beautiful here, actually. And when you're walking, are you thinking about your work and writing or are you just trying to step away from it all? I think I really process what I'm doing when I walk, if that makes sense. And it, I, it kind of lends itself to the work. I don't, I don't write actual linear sentences that are comprehensible but I definitely start to you know filter my thoughts yeah I also like looking at people as well (laughs) so you know people out walking or a family out on a picnic I get kind of inspired by that but I like to walk on my own it calms my nerves I get a very nervous energy when I write I write from a sort of a place of frenetic frantic energy I keep touching my mid section of my body here it comes from here but when I walk I feel that just all just kind of goes away and dissolves sometimes I sit here actually might just stop here a second because we've come out of a little stretch of woodland and then we're in a bit of pasture and you you grew up in a farm and it's very very clear from your writing your poetry and your fiction have a great sensitivity towards the the mixture of grit and wonder that goes into working with animals and working on a farm. But spring probably for you would really have been a time of really heavy work, wouldn't it? I think all seasons on a farm are actually a time of work, but spring particularly. And, you know, thinking about Bridget and thinking about spring and the festival and so on, I, I was looking back on my own childhood and wondering why I didn't have this great sense of connection to her like maybe other people I felt at. I Like I understood it and we made St. Bridget's Crosses and so on with my mum. But working on a farm, obviously it's lambing time. It's very cold in Ireland. So I, I think that January, February, March can be really harsh times of year. Um, for a child, yeah, there wasn't the wonder of looking at crocuses so much and daffodils as, you know, the ewes were heavy and they were going to drop and there was big responsibility um, with respect to the work that was on a farm. Our farm was very traditional. It was my grandfather's farm and um, my father inherited it, but everybody kind of lent a hand, but it was it was heavy work and cruel. I was a very sensitive child and quite a nervous child growing up and... I found it really hard to befriend these lambs or these foals or a cow and then they were brought to slaughter or, you know, they died of cold or whatever, you know, infections or it was brutal. And it has definitely affected my work. It has affected me, but it has really affected my work. The first piece you're going to read takes us back to that farm where you grew up. What, with with all that brutality, what makes you want to sort of revisit that time and place? Yeah, I feel actually for me it was very ambitious for me to go into that space and it's, I tell this story about when myself and my two brothers in spring, it was February and there was a foot of snow and we had to bring feed to the animals that were weathered out and we had to carry bales of hay and I don't know like for anyone that's listening, a bale of hay is very heavy and we had to bring it to the end of the land and our land was a long 
narrow stretch, so almost like a road. It ran along a railway line. I'm obsessed with railway lines. Our farm ran from Athenry to Tume, where I ended up working for 20 years. And I kind of thought, I'm not very ambitious at all. I just really went on the railway line. But yeah, so it was one day that we brought this hay down to the end of the land and there were horses and cattle and we had to, you know, distribute it in the snow. And it was harsh and it was cold, but it was also sort of gorgeous. It's a really gorgeous memory for me because the blanket of snow just felt so special. The whole place was just covered. So all the dirt and the muck and the not so nice parts of a farm were just covered in this white. And our tracks were the new fresh tracks because no one had barred the birds and maybe, you know, a fox or something. And we could hear our voice for miles around. We just felt like we were kings or something. It was just really, really special. So... This is a piece called A Fine Roll of Cloud from the West and that's actually a quote from a Tom Murphy play. It's a line from A Thief of a Christmas um, and that's one of his Momo trilogies. And I was really struck by this quote because I think it's Brian that says it and, you know, and I, I really find his plays quite evocative, obviously with language and with dialect as well, but also atmospheric aesthetically. So he says, Be hell, I don't know. Coming on duskus, there was a fine roll of cloud over in the West. And if you got a bit of a breeze at all, I'm thinking you'd soon see a thaw. And this piece that I'm going to read now sort of is waiting for a thaw because there's a snowfall and she, she, the child in the piece, is me, obviously. She's waiting for a thaw, but she also doesn't want to see the snow disappear because it's quite magical to her. So, a fine roll of cloud from the west. The yews will drop their lambs soon and a foot of snow has fallen. Beneath the white covering... Low lies moss and yellowed grass. Little grows among the rock and reclaimed land, save evergreens and gorse, apple trees among the acres of dry stone walls. To hell or wherever we stayed and remain for this cold February, fifth or sixth generation, on the land, longer as shepherds and woodcutters. Once a hundred people lived close by in a time when every season brought a mehel, but most have disappeared to hunger or ambition. Today's ground is rock harsh and the animals wintered out have no grazing. My grandfather is unwell with fever. He works the land with a pony and box cart, bringing food and water to animals, sheep, cattle, horses. He has retired the pigs and poultry, cheaper to buy a plucked chicken in cellophane with giblets in a bag from the new supermarkets. And so today we fodder on foot, for snow makes life difficult for the cart. Outside, we see our breath and laugh and pretend to smoke like horse dealers and cattlemen. The air stings my face, and our gloves are damp from yesterday. My older brother advises wearing them, as baling twine causes friction burns. My younger brother has red cheeks and smiles. Any adventure is better than the boredom that builds alone in a bedroom. Inside the road gate of the farm there's a vegetable patch. The new house is on the right, built with grandmother's London money, and the old house stands on the left, where inside is dark and stinks of burnt oil and leather. The box cart takes up the kitchen. One tiny room off it has a cloudy window and is filled with paint tins and glass bottles for hand-feeding motherless lambs. An iron brander sits in the corner and will mark F on shorn skin come May. I dream of heat, long days. My father was born in this room, where next door is the parlour, where the cows are milked, and next to it a hen house where feral cats hiss. 
I befriend an albino kitten as my brother pokes through the snow with a stick. Inside the horse's stable, the cart pony is back against the wall. One hoof lifted, resting. In the hay shed, we lift down a bale each. My older brother props one up vertical to my back and I squat to lift it. I am a small slip of a child with bony shoulders and I weave my arms into the tight twine on both sides. Bending at my knees, I try to stand, push my gloved hands hard on my thighs. I imagine it is a large school bag and I am a great scholar. For every action, there must be an escape. When lambs drop at midnight, they are exotic animals and I am a zookeeper. Our milking cows produce beer. One day I will leave this place, when I have less fear, but for now only dreams. It's quiet beyond the gate down to the land as snowfall blankets the scabby grass and white caps the stone walls. Everything seems softer as our small tracks in the snow gives our existence a permanence. I do not wish to think on the thaw that will later come. Trudging on up against the hill field, I tire, so we sit and wait a while. My little brother cracks through the ice on the troughs with his stick. Then he shouts and laughs. There is no one around. His voice carries past the apple orchard as he delights hearing his echo back. A herd of thin horses stand under a tree in the field's corner. Tiny birds have left tracks along the snow caps of the wall that we interrupt as we throw our bales over. The horses are alert to us now. They snort hard as they paw the ground. I am a nervous child and being close to the feed makes me a target as they bound at us. And I cut the twine fast as my brothers throw handfuls of hay about to scatter their charge. They try to distract them as I run. They are huge, the horses, a dozen of them charging to feed. The cattle remain lying, and the snow comes again as my ears throb. A chestnut mare breaks loose, notices me by the wall. She slows to a trot as she nears me, and I wait. She dips her head into the crook of my arm and blows out warm and hard on my cold hands. I back away, slowly, holding her stare. On our return, we count the yo's heavy in lamb. Later, father will ask if they were grazing alone or had swollen udders. He will ask if the horses were in good fettle, if any were lame. Did we clear the frozen water? Did each take to grazing? But nothing ever spoken about our cold hands, our ears frozen deaf. No word of how they thrummed. So I don't speak of the tiny crocuses by the half-barrel, their purple and yellow heads coming up through February's snow. What I really enjoyed about that piece is the shared labour between you and your brothers and the whole family really on the farm and, and with any family business. You and your brothers took on quite a bit. Did you enjoy it or resent it? Oh, now that's a great question. Um, I resent it, I think. I think it's a difficult life to be born into and I think it can be quite tough. It's hard to farm in the west of Ireland. The land isn't, you know, it's not wonderful and... 
there was probably not a whole pile of recognition or a whole lot of recognition given to the fact that I was a nervous child. And I think when I look back, I was very small. I'm obviously quite broad and <laughs> fine woman now, but I was a small, very narrow child. And I was I always felt a physical threat by bigger animals that were bigger than me. And there's a lot of romanticism and, and, and a lot of a romantic ideal of, you know, life in the West of Ireland and life on the farm and animals and so on and, and children, you know, kids that had ponies and stuff like my father broke young horses and sold them off at fairs the balance fair and so on so you never got to know these animals for long and you build a relationship as a child when you're young and innocent and you know you loved meeting new lambs and so on and then they were sold like I said to slaughter and you you got very used to letting go and not allowing yourself into the space of maybe feeling something for these animals so yeah I, I, and I think I did resent the work um, it was a lot. It was mornings, evenings, and you had to fit study in between that and socialising. And I liked sport, so you were you were busy. And maybe people would say that was really good for you, but I don't know. I find it tough. What's striking in your description in the piece is that your mind is even very early on at play. You imagine the bale of hay on your back as a school bag, and you as a scholar. You the the minding of the lambs becomes a zookeeper job, and and the milk, you know. <laughs> alluding I think to Bridget you know turns to beer um, but there's there's definitely an ambition there to set yourself apart and to imagine a different life yeah absolutely I was a very um, I, I, I dreamed a lot as a child I escaped through dreams and um, in a Walter Mitty sense I suppose but actually escapism is a very useful tool I think it's a very exciting activity for a child right and I always saw things quite differently, you know, even just the idea of going to mass. And when I was at mass as a young person, I was like, I used to see this guy up on a stage and think, that's amazing. I'd like to be up there. Everybody's listening to him. They're quite captivated. So I kind of understood the power of words, maybe from an early age. I thought people that are articulate and can get their message across and be on these stages. So I, when I couldn't be a priest, I said, I better be a poet. <laughs> So we're here in Rinvald Park and it's very quiet, but I do see in the distance a couple of magpies. Why are these superstitions still meaningful to people in general? I'm after seeing the two magpies and honestly they filled me with a little joy, which is actually bonkers. I realise that. I know the logic of this makes absolutely no sense. And, and thinking about Bridget actually, like there's a huge pagan influence on our culture. So do you think that that's why we continue to make things like Bridget crosses and we, we tie pieces of rag to trees in memory of her cloak? That we have these sort of objects and talisman that are still meaningful because they hark back to something long, long ago. Yeah, I think it's almost, it goes beyond, I suppose, our own maybe, you know, linear narrative comprehension of something. You know, I was thinking about St. Bridget and, and what, what, what it meant to me as a symbol. And I was discussing it and, and my husband goes, you have a, you made a St. Bridget's cross, you framed it and it's beside your desk when you work. So he said to clearly mean something to you. So I looked at the cross and I was like, yeah, he's actually right. I did do this. And it was almost subconsciously I did it. My mum made them with us. She made these crosses with us. And I knew that women were very important through my mother. Nolignaman was very important. St. Bridget's Day, make the cross. And she'd hang the cross in the house. She'd get it blessed. I wouldn't go that far. She said it saves the house from burning down. And I think I need a St. Bridget's cross. And I do. I kind of touch it. I feel myself drawn towards touching it. But I mean, I don't know who I'm kidding sometimes with my own cynicism that I try to put forward. It is just a veneer. It's not really me. I like I bought the house I grew up in. I stain on the land. I feel the layers of history underneath me. Like I mentioned 
mention in that that 100 people left that area. And I often wonder where they went. I think about them a lot. People move around the world all the time. Fine. I have a real problem with leaving. <laughs> I think we'll uh, move on and have a little bit more of a walk. It's really gorgeous here, actually, isn't it? We will just go to the little bit of the sea, though. I want to show it to you where I swim. Yeah. We're walking along here by the sea, it's quite quiet and it's an interesting time in Ireland. It's spring of course, but there's been a real pall over this spring of January 2022 with the murder of Ashling Murphy and we've just enjoyed a really nice walk through a relatively quiet but public part of Galway. For you, how, how different do you think it is for women and men in how they experience nature and the natural world and their ability to access it? Well, I think for us, um, it, it, the, it, Ashling Murphy's murder brought home again. It just, it just raised those fears that, we, that are always instinctively there in us, whether at a conscious level or a subconscious level. We're walking up along here now where the boats are at Renville and you can see there's swimmers at the back of a car here. And this is where I swim. And actually, I have been thinking about, I love the natural world, but I'm very cautious all the time when you check your surroundings people have been talking about you know you ring someone at the beginning of the walk you might have headphones in and be talking to someone the whole way along a walk if you're on your own and so on and you know it makes me really angry and you know I, I get filled with rage and I don't think it's of any use but I don't know what to do with it because I want these spaces to be safe spaces the natural world is for everybody but actually what I want to say is we're coming up here now to these turquoise benches in front of us and this is where I swim I swim in the sea a couple of times a week I'm actually a very strong swimmer, much better than I am a walker. <laughs> and I feel really safe in the sea because I actually feel that might be a safe place. I'm free from someone, you know, from an assault maybe, or obviously the sea is a huge threat and this is probably completely crazy way of thinking. But for me, it's my really safe space. I back up here, right? So we're right here now at the shore. So I back my car here and these yellow boys, I swim all along them. And that's my favourite thing. It's one of my favourite things to do. But going back to, you know, it's a very different experience for a man going for a walk and a woman going for a walk or a hike or into the woods. There's like, really, it's, it's an imprisoned way of living, really, isn't it? It's just, it's, it's, um, it's upsetting, really, is what it is. So, you know, on a day that we celebrate women and womanhood in Ireland and there are so many different forms what's meaningful to do on this Bridges Day? Um, I think it's wonderful to celebrate women and I think it's a very important occasion to mark but I think that before we can do that we really need to honour their safety and I think that women need to feel safe in the natural world and whatever way we can together reclaim that for women as a space for everybody because it should be the natural world um, should be a space that everyone feels safe and can enjoy and can access. Uh, until we do that, it's, it's difficult to fully maybe celebrate. So your first piece was a piece of non-fiction and the title was taken from a Tom Murphy play. And your second piece is a piece of fiction. It's also inspired by Tom Murphy and the Momo plays. What made you want to explore the character of Seamus in the play Bridget? 
You know, I really admire Murphy and the Tume connection and I've taught in Tume for years, but also, and the Druid-Galway connection as well. And these plays are so tragic. Like his work is is at a bleak level and, and people are really up against it, you know. This play is very interesting. From I worked in Tume for years, obviously, and I worked for the Catholic Church because I was a teacher, so you do by default. And you don't realise that there are people like Seamus. Seamus is asked to carve a statue of Bridget by the Reverend Mother and Father Kilgariff in the play. And he is at odds with the church because they owe him money and he's angry with them and he wants his money off the Archbishop. And he's stopping his grandchildren from going to Mass, but Momo's, you know, bringing them. And I, I forget that there were these rebellious people and revolutionaries, maybe, if, if you want to look at them like that, way before maybe the recent decades of change and so on. So I suppose I was just very interested in the idea of how do you carve Bridget? Do you carve the goddess or do you carve the saint or who do you carve or do you carve a female figure? And I think he asks a lot of questions and Mamo in the play of this, of how do you carve? So he carves her out of Bog Oak. The Stranger He was no sooner one foot from the bed and about to rise when Seamus needed to get out of the house. He dressed fast, considered boiling an egg, which she might berate him for going on without her. If he escaped a while, she'd cool in the blood she had boiled in. He poured a cup of milk from a crock on the table and moving aside the chisel and pieces of wood, he sat a minute, lifting a tiny wooden horse. He thumbed along its rump for splinters and resisted the urge to clear the table until a new project was underway. But it had bested him. A deity was intangible. And still he heard the Reverend Mother's awkward pleading for the new statue as a challenge. Beyond in the yard, February's mist was clearing and the sun promised herself. Their small house was close to the bog road. He lifted the red barrel handle on the shed door, sliding it open. Inside, he pulled his bicycle free from the grandchildren's and walked it to the road by its saddle, tick, tick. The sugar beet workers left the factory, pushing off with their left foot on the pedal, poker straight, lifting themselves confidently onto their bike. But Seamus sat first, heavy and seated, pushed off with both feet. He was a cautious man, but confident when cornered. No to dancing, no to mass, no to explaining why. When you're explaining, you're losing. The morning light lifted the bog yellows on the horizon. He cycled fast towards Cloche, where the railway track ran alongside, and the crude road upon the porous bog was spongy and uncertain. After some miles, Seamus slowed, dismounted and left the bicycle again the edge of the ditch. He walked into the bog, peaceful and uncut. By summer, yardage counts would be written on paper in dark kitchens and left for the turf cutter on top of sticks and covered over with glass jars. He found their own track by a red door thrown across a bog hole where he kneeled, rolled up his sleeves and lifted the door's heavy edge. He felt around the freezing cold blackness. Nothing. 
He sat, unlaced his boots, removed his thick socks, turned up his trousers and lowered himself down into the cold bog hole where he thrashed around until he could feel it. It's plastic, wrapped for years now. He'd been saving it, kept its soul in the bog. Lifting it out onto the bank, he pushed himself up where he sat a while, opened the bag and lifted it out. It was smaller than he remembered and looked now like a greyhound, he thought, or a salmon. He redressed his feet and back out on the road, tied the oak to the bicycle, remounted and pedalled towards home. Clouds came fast now, the sun slipping behind them. He stopped at his house, put his boot to the garden gate where daffodils were shooting. She was up and he watched her shadow in the kitchen bent over the fire. He considered carving this piece with her image in the early heady days after they'd met. But now they had taken again each other, their unspoken tragedies etched in their faces. And he couldn't bear looking so intently at her that he could carve with any certainty. He pushed off and made for town. It was fair day. Kempel's tea rooms were open early and inside he removed his cap, shoved it into the sleeve of his overcoat and he took a seat at a polished table where napkins waited on bone china. He placed the bog oak under his feet. Sitting back, the broad of his back sped out through the chair's narrow spindles. Good morning, sir, she said. Waving a notepad in her right hand, she eyed the wood. A kithog, he thought. Miss, he said, nodding. Bright day, she said. Aye, but turning. Spring is such a cheat, don't you think? He nodded. Whatever in the heavens is it? She asked. Bogwood, he answered. For burning, she asked, peeling the skin on her lip with her teeth. No, he said, for turning. Turning? Aye. The bog turns only to work, she said, chewing her pencil. He laughed. What'll you turn it to? A statue, he said. God, she said, alarmed. Kind of. Doesn't look like God, she said. Do you turn much? Ah, a couple of horses lately. This, though, this this is a woman, or so they say. Tis what they want in any case. Go away out of that, she said. It looks like a trout. Whatever will your missus say? She'll say, I hope you get paid, he said. And she laughed. Now we can't carve a life out on an empty stomach, she said. Indeed, he said, nor into it. What can I get you? The cathedral bells rang. Full Irish, a full Irish, she said, scribbling slowly. Sorry, late one, early lambs dropping at home, she said, nodding, and turned as more farmers came in now. He watched her seat them. Her thick, ebony eyelashes flicked to her nose. Twisting her hair at the back of her head, she lifted her pencil and pushed it through her curls, nails bitten to the quick, and gave herself a crown. He noted the sallow, weathered angle of her neck, her face real and full. He'd carve into the dark oak, or out of it, and let them make of it what they will.
So in, in the piece that you've written for Shelf Marks, Seamus takes inspiration from the women around him to carve this piece, this perfect woman in bog oak. Seamus in that found it very difficult to bring together in one statue this idea of Bridget with the tea, the pagan goddess um, uh, linked to the coming of spring, linked to poetry and the kind of chaste, the celibate nun who, who founded the church in Kildare. Is he ever really going to get there? Can you carve a perfect image of a woman? No, and nor should you, I suppose. And I mean, it's entirely subjective. And I suppose I wasn't drawn to this because it was a physical embodiment. The, the carving is an actual act of craft. I'm very interested in that idea. And what would someone create? And what way do they see these these figures like Bridget? The church are going to have one idea of what they are, the representation that they want. And it's going to be pure. And um, she's going to be, you know, this idea of perfection, which will be probably, to- is totally at odds with my idea of what maybe she will be would be like and then of course he's a man uh, going to carve someone he's he's in a tea rooms he has been uh, inspired let's say by by the woman the the girl serving him he's full irish she she's a very interesting character to me you know i mean both of the pieces tied together two girls right and they're both farmers daughters and they're both mentioned lambing and spring and so on I suppose to me that's a manifestation of what Bridget's Day means to me personally both of these pieces are connected by a young woman or a a girl and an older version of maybe that same girl actually I had that in my mind Um, they're both farmers daughters and they are both it's lambing and it's it's springtime that idea of a confident woman portrayed you know somebody that's quirky and interesting and but maybe making them solid and like women that I know and women that I love and 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 they are the women and the, the generations grandmothers and and my family and my women and my women friends and my sister they're Bridget to me that's what that day means you know it means these women that are amazing and resilient and fun and mad and you know complex and three-dimensional <laughs> Thanks to Elaine Vini for sharing her thoughts and writing with me. Her novel, As You Were, is published by Harville Secker. Also, thanks to the Royal Irish Academy and the Department of Foreign Affairs for supporting this podcast. You can find other episodes of Shelf Marks on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify and on ria.ie forward slash shelfmarks.